Scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. A woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and couldn't stand up straight. When he saw her, Jesus called her to him and said, Woman, you are set free from your sickness. He placed his hands on her, and she straightened up at once and praised God. The synagogue leader, incensed that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded, There are six days during which work is permitted. Come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath day. The Lord replied, Hypocrites, don't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from its stall and lead it out to get a drink? Then isn't it necessary that this woman, a daughter of Abraham, bound by Satan for 18 long years, be set free from her bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said these things, all his opponents were put to shame, but all those in the crowd rejoiced at all the extraordinary things he was doing. Jesus asked, What is God's kingdom like? To what can I compare it? It's like a mustard seed that someone took and planted in a garden. It grew and developed into a tree, and the birds in the sky nested on its branches. Again, he said, to what can I compare God's kingdom? It's like yeast, which a woman took and hid in a bushel of wheat flour until the yeast had worked its way through the hole. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. with me. God, I don't know uh, how we're all showing up today. I have no idea what each of us need to see from your spirit that is active and moving. I do know that most of us spend our lives blind to what your spirit is doing in the world. So whatever you want us to see this morning, I ask that you would open our eyes and that your words would come through and not my own. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. I wanna welcome all those watching on our live stream and everyone who's present here today. You know, after a little over a year of launching my impromptu career as a YouTube youth pastor, um, I cannot, cannot put into words how grateful I am uh, to not just be preaching into a screen, but to be preaching to real live humans here present today. Um, I need to, you know, I'd be remiss not to give a shout out to our, our youth and our students. Um, it, it has been such a true joy to be um, 
be pastor here. I don't know if I see any of my students here, but if you see this, that Michael Fox, what's up, man? Hey, he's repping our youth group right now. Way to be. Uh, it's been such a joy to be uh, the youth pastor here at such a strange time um, in our lives. And I, I just, I need to uh, just highlight our students and, and talk about how cool they are. You know, the pandemic hit, and that's when all of the ministry uh, plans and strategy, kind of, the playbook was thrown out the window. We had to pivot to pandemic ministry online, and it's, you know, I think a lot of churches, a lot of youth groups were like, you know, well, this is, this year's going to be a wash. And our students rose up to the occasion. They would show up every single week when they didn't need to, when they were Zoomed out. Uh, they showed up, our, our adult volunteers showed up to, to, to make our online program like what it is uh, today. And I'm just I'm so proud of them. I want to give a shout out to the parents. You know, if you've, man, if you forced your, your, your kid to come to youth group, God bless you. I mean, <laughs> thank you. Uh, so I just want to recognize our, our, our student ministry today. You know, these students and volunteers are inspiring in ways that I can't begin to describe. So for my first sermon, I chose a parable that talks about something that's dear to my heart, and that's the kingdom of God. And I know that whether or not you've been in church um, or not, you, you might have bristled when I just said that phrase. And I want to acknowledge our skepticism at coming into a text like this today. Um, because of how this teaching has been distorted, I, I want to acknowledge that um, our skepticism for this text is warranted. And I'm aware that the, the challenge for us today in just broaching the text is uh, to really parse out what, what Jesus is talking about versus what many Christians have conflated with militaristic conquest and expansion. And that's our challenge today. So as we approach the text today, I'm going to do something that I don't normally do. I want to give us the freedom to be skeptical and to bring all of our skepticism and suspicion to this text. And this is not something that I would normally say. A lot of the times I say, like, you know, try to, you know, leave your skepticism and, you know, your suspicion at the door. And here I want to bring, I want us to bring all that the text this morning. And I think that that's really fitting, uh, not just because we should be skeptical of messianic figures who are overpromising peace and justice for our world, but also because there is already a level of suspicion being leveled at Jesus in the text this morning. Um, if, you re if you recall the text that Mina just read, um, this is a textbook case of how, you know, Jesus has kind of been targeted by the religious establishment. From the beginning of Luke's gospel, what we see, um, this Palestinian Jew named Jesus has been under scrutiny by the religious leaders. Um, his upbringing, his hometown, his teaching, um, his disciples, how he spends his free time. You know, when we arrive at this passage, uh, Jesus already has this reputation of kind of being like, like a bad boy. He's got like this bad boy image. He's like breaking the rules constantly. And he's hanging out with the wrong crowd. And what I mean by that is that he just doesn't seem, specifically in our passage, to observe the Sabbath law. Which is really important at that time. Because that's protective of Jewish identity. And then he surrounds himself with these really dubious characters. Commoners, fishermen, women, prostitutes, poor, homeless, tax collectors, people who are complicit in the oppression of their people. 
And so it's understandable that in the eyes of the religious establishment, Jesus is going about this kingdom project all wrong. So our passage is a textbook case of Jesus going about the wrong thing at the wrong time with the wrong kind of person. And we're told that he heals a woman who's suffering from physical physical condition, and it's this beautiful, liberating event which restores her to her community. But because Jesus violates the Sabbath law, this earns him, not praise, but a public public reprimand from the synagogue leader that day. This isn't the right time or the place for that. So here's the charge that's being leveled at Jesus in front of everyone in the synagogue. On one level, it's why do you keep on desecrating our, the most holiest days, right, of our week, the Sabbath? Why do you keep on desecrating the Sabbath? On another level, it's saying, if you are the Messiah, then how is what you're doing aligned with God's purposes for our world? And so Jesus offers these two parables to describe the nature of God's kingdom. And these parables are key because all throughout Luke, we've heard about Jesus talk about the kingdom. It's all he talks about, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And this is the first time in Luke's gospel where Jesus actually gives us a description of what the kingdom of God is like. So this is really key. And these parables, these parables, these images, they're, they're they're really confusing. They're almost like riddles. And I say riddles intentionally, not because I think that these things are the same thing, but because there's an enigmatic quality to these parables. Their meaning is really elusive. It challenges us to interpret them, right? And what's striking is the choices of the images themselves. The images themselves. Jesus could have used any other tree, right, to describe the kingdom of God. He chooses a mustard, I mean, a mustard tree. And that's odd. Because if you know anything about mustard trees, there's a lot of people who know things about mustard trees in this audience. They're not that impressive. One scholar correctly notes that a most, more accurate depiction is a mustard shrub. You know, I think about, you know, I'm a youth pastor, I think about young Jewish teenagers uh, who grow up familiar with this concept of the kingdom of God. They see Jesus like taking on the religious establishment, so they're like, yeah. And then I think about how embarrassed they might be when they hear Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. It's like, you couldn't have picked in a better tree? It's like, why not the oaks of righteousness from Isaiah? Like, why not the mighty cedars from Ezekiel? Like, we're talking about the kingdom. Like, talk it up a little bit. Dress it up. And Jesus chooses a mustard, mustard tree. And then he uses another underwhelming image to describe the kingdom of God, yeast. And setting aside the fact that, I don't know, you know, you cannot see yeast work unless you have a microscope, uh, the image itself only applies to a certain class of people. So here, Jesus has a chance to make his case for what God's project is for the world. And he chooses yeast. It's, it's, it's really confusing. The imagery is so pedestrian. It's, it's, uh, it would be something that only appealed to first century Palestinian village life. This is something that appeals to women and household cooks. So it's like almost as if Jesus is intentionally using two very forgettable pictures to describe God's activity and God's domain. What do you make of this? 
You know, one time I was at the DMV, which I realized sounds like a very old sentence in COVID times. Uh, I had graduated from seminary in 2018 and moved back to Chicago, which meant that I earned the, the ticket to go to the DMV, which is really lucky of me. Uh, how do I describe this place? Let's, like, you guys remember, do you remember the DMV? Do you remember it? Let's reminisce a little bit about the DMV. Uh, how do I describe the DMV? The DMV is like, uh, it, it's, it's a bit like what our Catholic friends refer to as purgatory, right? This is a place, this is a place that will slowly purge you of your will to live and make you reflect on all your life decisions while you perform meaningless tasks. Like, and I don't know if it's extra complicated in Chicago, too. It's like, if you make it through, you're one of us. You know, like, I don't know if it's that. Uh, my strategy was, you know, to, to escape, you know, some of the craziness that is a DMV. Just to go on a weekday, you know, when everyone is working. And my plan failed miserably. You know, it did not matter. I, I, the moment I pull in, I see a line of stressed out, hungry Chicagoans snaking out the front door. I'm like, oh no, here we go. I get in line. I'm like standing right next to another, <laughs> no joke, there's a guy who's standing next to me and he has the biggest copy of the Brothers Karamazov that I've ever seen. That book's already at home, but it's like the biggest copy. <laughs> and me and a bunch of people are laughing in line. I, mean, I love the optimism there too. It's like, I'm going to plow through like this book today. Um, so anyway, I get there and things are starting off great. You know, I do, and I do all the things. I do all the things, all the needlessly complicated things. You got to get to one desk just to get in the door, and you got to get you got to get to the one desk to get to a desk. There, and this that's that's really how it is. You you just go to desks. And at some point, you're like, how many desks are in this building? Goodness. Um, but anyways, I get to the last desk, and they tell me that I have to take a vision test. But there's a slight problem. Because I forgot my glasses that day in my car. I say, okay, no problem. I will take the test because my vision isn't that bad. You know, I, I have this, this is a lazy eye, but this, this eye is really great. It's like 20-20. So I was like, I can get by. So they show me an image. I'm taking this vision test. And they show me an image. And these are all letters I can clearly see. This is like, you know, kind of like the first grade uh, that they show you of film, right? I repeat what I see, and the desk clerk says, uh-huh, uh-huh, what else do you see? So I take a look at it again, and I'm reading, I read the letters out loud even louder, and she's like, okay, what else do you see? And, and I think I'm going crazy at this point. Like, I'm like, what, what is happening? Is she, is, is the desk, does the desk clerk have it wrong? Is, is what she's showing me? And, and what she has on her screen, like, just not, are they two separate things? That's what I think. And this lady handled it with so much patience because it's kind of startling when you think you're not seeing something. It, it is startling when someone's like, oh, my God, you know, like, that's, that's a startling thing. And so she hands it with such patience. She says, sir, do you need your glasses to drive? I nod and say, yeah, I do. She said, I think it's best if you go get your glasses. So I go get my glasses in the car. The entire time I'm thinking, there's no way I cannot see this. I've seen this image how many times? There's no way. Sure enough, I go back, look at the image again. And a letter 
magically appeared. <laughs> I felt so salty after that. I was like, Here's the point of that long-winded story. The entire time I think that something is wrong with the image, the entire time the problem is my eyesight. See, that's why the image of the mustard seed and the yeast appear really strange to us, because the problem isn't with the image that Christ offers. The problem is with you and me. We are the synagogue leaders. We are the ones blind to the people with whom God is already at work. We are the ones who are blind to God's power already at work. There's this wonderful scene in the book Lilith by George MacDonald where the raven, he acts like a guide in the book, turns to the main character, Mr. Vane, and this character is perplexed by this enchanted world that he has entered. And in their exchange, the raven says to Mr. Vane, what you call riddles are truths and seem riddles because you are not true. That's what's happening in this passage. Jesus is exposing something false about this ruler of the synagogue. Because here we have this this person who's supposed to be a leader in his community, he has some serious vision problems. Here he is. He's a leader in the community, and he can't see. He cannot see how the healing of one woman who suffered from physical, social, and demonic oppression for almost two decades fits with the kingdom of God. You know, in his mind, the kingdom of God arrived on a much grander scale. God's kingdom arrives, and it is political liberation from Rome. It is militaristic domination of all of Israel's enemies. That's how the kingdom of God arrives. God doesn't waste God's power on such an insignificant task as the healing of the woman, especially not on the Sabbath. And that's why Jesus uses these really unimpressive pictures of yeast and seed. Because he wants this man to see how blind he really is. Jesus is saying, you want to know what will help you see the kingdom of God and God at work? Spend time watching a woman who's making a loaf of bread for her village. Spend time in the garden of a migrant farmhand planting mustard trees. Let them teach you where I am already at work. There's this theologian named Drew Hart, and he says that God is already present long before we show up. The Spirit is long present before we lift a finger. And this is what he says. Deliverance helps us remember that God is the solution to the captivity, to evil, injustice, and death that humanity experiences. God is active, present, and intervening in the midst of of the crushing poverty that people are experiencing even right now. God is present through the cycles of violence from which refugees are fleeing and that produce over 30,000 American deaths from gun violence each year. God has not abandoned people locked up in oppressive cages, but rather shows up for the most vulnerable of our human siblings who have been treated in inhumane ways. God is with the oppressed, the poor, the young people caught in vortexes of deprivation. And those with mental and physical disabilities who are stigmatized 
and vulnerable. God's delivering presence is a force we can join. That's the call of the Spirit to us today. And we need to remember that as the Spirit is calling us to move and work towards justice and shalom in our city, in our world, this is what we need to remember, that the kingdom of God has already been inaugurated for those who are most vulnerable. That's what we need to remember, that we're not bringing liberation. God is already doing the work of liberating the oppressed long before we arrive. We are participating in what the Spirit is already doing. We're not bringing the kingdom. We are seeking, seeking the kingdom. That's what we're taught to do. The synagogue leader isn't just blind to the most vulnerable. He's also blind to God's delivering power. And here's also where I think we're we're like this religious leader. Because if we're honest, I don't know that we want this kind of power. You know, we know that these images of gardening and bread making, we, we, we kind of sense what Jesus is getting at, that this this kind of work costs us something. And Jesus is asking us ultimately to love. That the power that Jesus is describing in this text is the power of love. And this is a power performed in weakness. And love means dying to yourself. You know, lo- love is costly. It's risky. It's too much work. And there's not enough return on investment sometimes. Right? Who wants that kind of power? So we opt for a different kind of power. We opt for prosperity many of the times. Prosperity is one of the primary ways that we view power in our churches. You hear it in our language all the time. You know, what we need more, more resources, more, more members. More volunteers, more more accolades, more influence. We're always operating out of this scarcity mindset. If we just had more, what would it mean for us to remember as a community that the quality of our love is our primary power? How might that propel us as we seek shalom in our city, in our world? Love is our primary power. Something that's uh, kind of a hidden passion of mine uh, is Olympic weightlifting. <laughs> yeah, bear with me. Uh, I got into it a few years ago uh, when my, my gym would incorporate a lot of Olympic uh, lifts in our training and our workouts. And so early on, I remember learning that the secret to uh, lifting well is good technique. Good technique is going to get the weight up. You know, you cannot just muscle or, you know, power snatch you know, 200 pounds over your head. Like, it takes, like, really, really patient uh, work, really patient work, and really patient technique. You have to know when to pull. You have to know how to position your arms. You have to know how to catch the bar. You got to know when to bail, when to bail on a bad lift. There was one winter where I got into it, and so I would come into the gym early just to, to lift, and after one session, you know, I was ready. I was like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to personal record. I'm going to PR today, personal record. I'm like, I'm going to do this. It's going on the gram, you know? 
Like, that's, that's, the, that's the lifting way. You, it goes on the gram and you go, ah, like that, that whole thing. Uh, so I was like, I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to hit this PR, you know, that I've been chasing for a while. And so I, I make attempts and I keep on missing the lift like over and over again. And I don't know, I make several attempts and my coach pulls me aside and he goes, you know, I think you've done everything you can for the day. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe let's cool it for a little bit. He's, and then I, I asked him, I said, well, what am I doing wrong? And he was like, I don't think it's what you're doing wrong. He's like, I think you need to visualize the lift more. Like, you, you, need, to, you need to be able to vi visualize the lift itself, is what he said to me. And he proceeds to give me a bunch of videos and, like, Instagram uh, accounts to follow. And he says, take the rest of the week off. Don't touch a bar. I want you to just watch. Just watch. Do not touch a bar. Just watch how these athletes lift. So I end up taking it as his advice, even though I, I'm like, how is that going to help me? watching people who are Olympic lifters lift <laughs> way more than me. And I watched these videos, and for the rest of the week, I started to get what he means by visualization. That there's something about seeing someone do that you don't think can be accomplished, that you can never see yourself doing, or maybe you think is impossible to do. And there's something about seeing someone do what you think is impossible. Jesus knows that, that your and my imaginations are too small. That's what Jesus knows. And so he knows that we're so immersed in power structures that use coercion and violence and that we can't imagine how God's power is enough to combat ugliness in our world. So what Jesus does the author of life writes himself into the script as a character in the story. He performs the ultimate act of self-giving that we are not able to fathom. And he offers us one final image, the cross. That's the invitation for us this morning, is that Jesus is inviting us to gaze prayerfully upon the cross and, and ask us, where are the people and places and insignificant moments in your life where you can't imagine God being present? And look at my cross and how in that God-forsaken place I am most present and my power is most at work in the world. I know that as we emerge out of COVID, many of us are trying to figure out where God is at work in our church, maybe in our own lives, and I know it's hard for us to sense where God can possibly be in this moment. I don't have all the answers to that, but I do know. I do know what that feels like. I know what it feels like. And so I thought I would offer my closing reflections on where I've seen God at work in this pandemic, at least in our church, and I'd like to offer it as a kind of prayer of reflection for us this morning as we close. So if you want to bow your heads and make this a sacred time to just pray. Um, pray with me.
The kingdom of God is like a high school student being willing to be real over Zoom, share their struggles, ask hard questions about faith with their CG on a Sunday night. The kingdom of God is like a queer student who takes a chance to go to the youth group online and experiences radical welcome for the first time. The kingdom of God is like a church member struggling with loneliness, surprised to hear a healing word from a song or sermon from a live stream. The kingdom of God is like a youth leader starting to believe that a Zoom call isn't just a Zoom call, but a place where God's spirit is present. The kingdom of God is a call from a pastor who is wondering how you're holding up after a second lockdown. The kingdom of God is getting an unexpected shout out from a coworker when you're feeling discouraged. The kingdom of God is like a friend inviting you to a socially distant walk when you haven't been outside in a few days. The kingdom of God is a church waking up to their complicity and structural injustice and doing the hard work of listening and learning. Jesus asked, what is God's kingdom like? To what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed that someone took and planted in a garden. It grew and developed into a tree, and the birds in the sky nested in its branches.